Hello, and welcome to the Good News Podcast, where we try to share the good news of Christ's salvation. We'll try to upload a new message every week for you. For more information, or to send us a comment, please visit us at www.gathered.com. Thank you. The following message was given by David Oliver of Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, at the Brookfield Gospel Hall in Brookfield, Connecticut, in the fall of 2003. It was part of a two-week seminar series on future events entitled Finding Security in an Uncertain World. For outlines of these messages, please go to www.gather.com. Uh, thank you for being with us tonight. And, uh, remember that there's a meeting here on Sunday, but it won't be uh, a seminar on future events. The last meeting tonight, and... Uh, If my mind hasn't gone by the end of the meeting, uh, I should maybe thank you all at the present time for uh, your interest, encouragement in the meetings, and um, for the privilege of being with you. Night by night, it has been a joy, and uh, it's been a pleasure to visit with the Christians and donuts together as well. Now I'd like to read in Romans chapter 8, please. Romans chapter 8. Because the creature, or actually that is creation, because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the glory, the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth and pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Just wanted to point out the connection in verse 21, that the blessing of creation and the liberty of the children of God are linked together there. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. For every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. So that is Christ at this end that is referred to here, hands over a completed work. To God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. That's at the end of the millennial period, and everything that opposes God has been brought under his feet. For he must reign till he have put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. That is, this is what God has ordained that all things should be under his feet. But when he said all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. That is, God, even the Father, will not be put under him, but all else. 
And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him. This is God's purpose that all things will be put under him and the Son will complete that work and hand it over to the Father, himself being subject to the Father, that God may be all in all. That is a most amazing statement. God may be all in all. Second Peter chapter 2. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord, I like that, the day of the Lord, will come as a thief in the night. So that's the beginning of it. It comes unwanted, unexpected as far as earthlings are concerned. In the which, now we're being taken to the end of it, the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought he to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Just a little word while we're reading verse 11. Is there any value to future events? Second Peter 3, did I not say that correctly? Second Peter 3, sorry, and we're at verse 11. Second Peter 3, verse 11. But you'll notice in verse 11 one good reason for studying these things, not just to tickle our brains and uh, not just so we become experts on the Bible uh, that would be nice but it is for a practical purpose because we understand where things are going it affects, it must affect how we live if this world is going to be dissolved then we should be living for another world and uh, so that is the practical effect of this, looking for verse 12 and hasting unto or earnestly desiring the coming of the day of God. So we have the day of the Lord, the day of God now, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. This is taking us to the beginning of that period of time. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now, finally, in the book of Revelation, we're going to go over to chapter 20. For a verse. When this rebellion takes place at the end of the millennial period of time, verse 9 says, And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints above and the beloved city, Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now, verse 1 of chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man, men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. 
And he that sat on his, upon his throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And just one last reading in chapter 22. Now this is a description of the city. And we are looking at this city from verse 10 onward. We're looking at this city in the millennial period of time. And this is what it says about the city during that period of time. At the beginning of the chapter, we're looking at the city in the day of God. But here, we are looking at it during the millennium. And verse 3, There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Now, here we are at the long line. And uh, what we're looking at tonight is the day of God. The eternal, unchangeable state, a brave, new, and never-ending world. This is the uh, beginning of a new heaven and a new earth, the blight of sin that has affected the old earth will all be removed, and God will have his desire granted for the whole world and his relationship with men, God dwelling among men, and righteousness at last will be at home in the world in which we will then live. Now, unfortunately, I notice that I have a blurred copy of the outline, and your outline is perfectly clear. I found a mistake, but actually, I laid this on a, another transparency that has wet ink on it, so I'm getting um, all that extra black on there. Very ugly. I could have just not shown it to you, but then I wouldn't know what to do. So, let me just look at the five things that are on this in dealing with this day of God. This is the day when God will be all in all, and I take it that that's related to the title, the day of God. A fiery passage at the beginning of it, a flawless perfection that comes in, a fulfilled purpose as far as God is concerned. We'll take a look back at the city, which is a featured preview of the conditions of this day of God, and a final permanence. Uh, that will be affected in this day of God, a never-changing world. Uh, you'll see that we are looking, first of all, at the conclusion of one day, the day of the Lord, and we read that in Second Peter 3, and we'll look at the commencement of another day, uh, which is given to us two, two day, verses later in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 12. Now, the day that we're looking at, the, the day of the Lord, Okay, back here. The day of the Lord is a day that has a dual character. Whenever you find in the Old Testament a day of the Lord, there are a number of days of the Lord. Uh, whenever God dealt with his people's enemies and uh, defeated them, and at the same time worked on behalf of his people, that would be a day of the Lord. A day when the faithful, unchanging Lord would deliver his people bring them into blessing, delivering them from all their enemies. And so, of course, that's what's going to happen in this coming day of the Lord. God is going to fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel, and he is going to deliver 
the nation of Israel and himself of all his enemies as far as this world is concerned. He comes unwelcomed, unwanted, as a thief in the night, but that day will not be completed until finally every enemy, all authority and power has been put down according to what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so we're looking at the day of the Lord, the day of God's dealing in favor of his people and against the enemies of his people and against the enemies of his own throne. And in this day now, God is working wrath for his enemies, well-being for his own. This will be the completion of God's deliverance at the end of this day of the Lord. The the wicked will be removed. The works, it says, the works shall be burned up. So God is going to uh, destroy all the works of this world, all the traces of man's ingenuity and accomplishment, and finally the world will be refined. I want to stop here on this great very beginning of the meeting and point this out. That in order for all these bright blessings that we are going to look at, which are the result of redemption, never forget that all the blessing and glory of the future is all the result of what took place in shame and suffering upon the cross. Not only was their salvation provided personally, but all that God would ever do, redemption, is all found on the blood that was shed on that cross. And so, God is going to deal ultimately with all the effects of sin. The effects of sin as far as the choices of sinners are concerned. Persons who die in their sins will suffer for every single sin they have ever committed against God. But they will suffer for those sins because they failed to bow to what the Word of God said. They failed to bow to Christ. They failed to accept Him personally as Savior. And so, I went on as a boy in my teen years without Christ. And uh, I, I thought that really I was sort of different from other people, I mean, from the boys at school that I went to school with, and people that didn't know the gospel, because I knew the gospel, and I intended someday to be saved. Of course, when that someday would be, I never thought I'd become 20 without being saved, but, uh, but then uh, I thought about other things I'd like to do in life, and, well, maybe 30 and on it would go, but I failed to recognize that what I was doing, putting off salvation, was clearly saying no to the Lord Jesus. If I really thought you could give me something of value, I would take it. But I think I can find something of value apart from you, Jesus. I prefer this world. I prefer my sins. I prefer my own way. Now, if someone said that to you, would you find any offense in that? If the someone who said it gave you life, would there be any offense in that? If the someone who, to whom you are saying it, rather, had actually given his life for you, would you understand that there's something dreadfully wrong with that? That's just exactly what sinners are doing. Choosing to turn away from Christ. And with that choice, they are choosing sin. So let me remind you that before God brings in all these blessings, and I hope our hearts will be thrilled 
as we look at what God ultimately will do, before God brings in all those blessings, He is going to finally, completely deal with sin. Every trace of sin in this world is going to be forever banished from the presence of God. He has given men a soul, a spirit that will never cease to exist. So because they have chosen sin, they will carry their sins with them in an eternal existence. But they will be in the lake of fire forever and forever. Every sin brought out into the open to be judged, every choice to turn away from Christ, now to have its right recompense, its right judgment, God will remove the wicked from His creation and remove, therefore, from, from the creation every trace of sin. Will you understand tonight that to go on in your sins, no matter what your promise in God, no matter what your intentions may be, to go on in your sins is suicide, spiritual, eternal suicide, and the results are the tragic lake of fire forever and forever. And the sad thing to us who are saved will be that there is enough in the work of Christ to have included you in all these infinite blessings. There's no need for one soul to pass one more night without knowing every single sin forgiven. That's the value of what he accomplished at Calvary. If you understand that when God rises up to deal with sin, the Bible says, the heavens and the earth flee from His face. Do you understand the tremendous power of that statement? That's so awesome is God when He rises in judgment. That the picture is as if the inanimate world fled from Him in terror. What will you do when you can't flee and you stand before Him and nothing on the other side of that awesome throne but a lake that burns with fire and brimstone and you must stand before God. Every sin, the truth of the Word of God, the Book of Life, all brought up and God finally will pass you from His presence because He doesn't love you. He provided salvation. He gave His Son. He would long for you to have enjoyed all the blessings purchased at Calvary. You chose to turn away. The choice to go on without Christ is a crucial choice. God is not obligated to wait until you decide you have reached the time when you plan to be saved. God could take your choice tonight and say that's the last choice. That's where it will stand forever. Whether the Lord came, whether you died, by whatever means, God could say tonight is the final choice. You could live for years in this world. But have made your choice in the Brookfield Gospel Hall on October the 1st, 2003. You say, how can that be? I'll tell you something that gives me great sadness. 
After our son was injured, we spent time in a rehab hospital. One floor was for spinal injuries, one floor was for brain injuries, and the third floor was for mixed injuries, people that had strokes and various other problems. So every once in a while we saw people from the second floor, the floor where they were brain injured. And I thought with deepest concern that likely for some of those people, they are living, they are functioning, their mind is not working right anymore. And on a day, a warrior went swimming down in the Delaware Bay. And however it happened, there was a stone hidden under the water. And that man with tremendous capabilities hit the back part of his head on that stone, however it happened. He would never be the same. And I wondered, if that man could have been saved before, could he be saved now? There are some who have suffered an injury like that. And I would imagine, if my judgment counts for anything, I would assume that their opportunity for heaven was lost forever. The choice they made was sealed eternally. Solemn things choice that's made and the soul to be banished forever. We have sung together tonight that there's a bright day coming. But its brightness will only come to them that love the Lord. So the question is, are you ready? Has there ever been a time in your life when you claimed Christ as your personal Savior? All important. All those blessings purchased at Calvary. And everyone who trusts the Christ who died at Calvary gets all the blessings. Oh, how free the grace of God. How simple the offer that he makes. Christ is available to you tonight. Closer than I am to anyone in the meeting. Waiting to be received by you personally. His hands marked with nails. That tell the truth. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the punishment of our peace was upon him. And with his strengths, with what he suffered, we are healed. Everyone in the meeting tonight, see there's just two classes in the meeting. Everyone in the meeting tonight thinks of the truth of Isaiah 53 and 5. And thanks God that that is all I need for heaven. And there are others, some may be questioning and wondering and trying to figure it out. And some may be turned off and unconcerned. But you've missed the truth of the cross. And you'll miss heaven. And you'll miss the blessings that we're looking at tonight. I would just love to see some that are with us tonight with such a burning thirst. To know all this good that we're looking at. But if nothing of the warnings of eternal judgment move you to flee from the wrath to come, you would recognize tonight the best possible choice is to choose Christ and to be saved for all eternity. But I want to look with you now, just following this up, so we'll understand uh, where we are. There is now, once that day of the Lord ends with fire... There is the beginning of the day of God. And uh, 
That day of God is the day in which God will make all things new. You may know that there are two words for new in the New Testament. One is the word from which we get chronology, or a chronograph, a watch. And uh, that word means new as far as time is concerned. It's a, a new week, it's start of new time in another week. But the other word is, and we use these two words interchangeably, these two thoughts interchangeably, but something is new. It's, it's new in character. It's just fresh. It's new. And that's the word that's used for a new heaven and a new earth. It's new in character. The former world is old. And all that that word, word implies, this word is new. It's different in its character. Untouched by sin. And uh, it is made new as far as its configuration is concerned. Now, I should just tell you that not everybody agrees with what I'm about to say. But, I mean, if they're wrong, of course I should be wrong too. Um, but when it says, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, some have assumed that the elements melting sends them into nothingness, and then God recreates a new heaven and a new earth. Could be, but I don't think so. The elements being destroyed, uh, the elements passing away or melting with fervent heat, is their rearrangement. Now, I'm going to talk about atomic things and, and try to explain all this in a natural way. But I would take it that part of what we are looking at here in this new heavens and new earth is this. God had something in mind when he created to begin with. And what he had in mind could not be realized apart from sin being eventually removed from that creation into which sin would come. So God recreates. However he changes the structure, he will be working with a world in which there is absolutely no sin involved in that world. Now, maybe we'll look further at that uh, by the time we're finished at the end of the outline. But I'm just suggesting to you that this is not only a world that's new in character, but actually in some way its whole configuration will be changed as well. Maybe I should show you this graphic just for a moment. My suggestion to you is this. That without explaining this or even understanding it, uh, there are three geophysical arrangements as far as this world is concerned. Now this is the way it looks presently. I think it looked quite different at the time it came from God's hand, post-creation. But post-creation... There was a cloud-covered atmosphere around this world. Now that is taken from the fact that the waters above the firmament and the waters below the firmament in creation were separated. And in addition to that, according to first, Second Peter chapter 3, not chapter 2, the, the earth that then was was stored with water. So that when the flood came, the clouds above burst with water, with rain, and the great fountains of the deep were opened up. So both from within the earth and from above the earth, God had stored it with water and that water was used for judgment. But it will never be used for judgment again. God gave us rainbow in the sky. He would never destroy the world by water. But in the arrangement then that came after the flood, however God did this, we'll leave that to him, there's an atmosphere and there is an earth that is stored with fire. 
and whether you want to think of that atmosphere as being capable of its elements melting with fervent heat, I think that's possible. So that this whole geophysical arrangement that we know now is stored with fire because it is going to be judged by fire at the conclusion of the day of the Lord before the day of God comes in. Are we making sense on this? All right. I, say, I take it that there will be then a post-history geophysical arrangement. However the new heavens and the new earth are, they will be made new and they will never be destroyed. So even the clock of this world that's ticking down will finally have ticked its last moment and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and it will never be ticking down. It will never be degenerating. And we'll look at that further. But post-history, we're looking at a new geophysical arrangement. How that will be, a new heaven and a new earth, and the two, heaven and earth, somehow united together, and God's dwelling with man. But we are looking at something of a tremendous change as far as God's work in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, let me just move on to flawless perfection. I looked at the dictionary on this, and it said perfection is an absolute word that doesn't need any modifier. Except that in the world in which we live, there is no such thing as perfection. What is perfect is just as near as possible to the ideal. Well, this will be flawless perfection. God will finally have, have brought in a world in which not only is there perfection, but there's nothing else but perfection in that new world. And what we have read about in the details of it in Revelation 21 and verse 4 ought to thrill our hearts. The very cause of sorrow will be removed. God himself shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. That doesn't just mean in case you have a little tear coming up that God will wipe it away. It means God will remove from our eyes tears. Whatever would ever cause tears will be wiped away by the kindness of God in this perfect new creation. The consequences of sin will have been removed. And what you read about here is there's no more death. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So this is the greatest condemnation that comes from sin. There's death in the world. And that will be removed. There shall be no more, no more death. Physical reminder of sin. No more sorrow. And the word that's there is the idea for uh, something that causes uh, laboring mentally. And, and uh, there will be no more sorrow. No more distress as far as the effects of sin. No more crying. This is the, I, may, I may have forced this, I'm not positive, but in looking at the different words, um, the, the idea of crying is the idea of just something that's distressed and, and all upset. Never again will anyone raise the question, why did this have to happen? Why, why is there, are there problems? Why are there sorrows in the world? All cause of crying, of questioning, of being disconcerted, gone. And no more pain. Nothing that will cause emotional stress or strain. Every effect of sin that we take for granted at the present time, it will all have been removed forever. All based on the work of Christ, but it will be based on the mighty power of God in a new creation. And in this world, notice what is being said about the, the world that then will be. It is a world in which righteousness will dwell. Now, if you remember about the kingdom time, the millennial period of time, that's a great time. Not taking away from that. 
But in that time, we read about righteousness reigning. A king shall reign in righteousness. So righteousness will be imposed in the millennium. And eventually there will be people that oppose that, but it's still imposed on them. And righteousness will reign. But in the new heavens and the new earth, righteousness will finally find a place to live. Righteousness will be at home. Righteousness will be just content. Everything will be in keeping with righteousness. Wherein dwelleth righteousness is the word that is used in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. And this word will be all, not only that men desire, but all that God desires. Just go back to what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, I'm interested to know all that this expression means. That God may be all in all. We can just brush over those statements that God may be all in all. It sounds good. Period. But in this new world, when death has been destroyed, everything has been brought into subjection to Christ, who then hands it all over, and he and all in subjection under him is subject to the Father. Death destroyed, that God may be all. Suddenly there is no rival for God. Nothing to oppose God. God is absolutely supreme. Everything acknowledges from the last atom of the new creation. Everything acknowledges God is right. Do you understand what sin is doing? Sin is saying God's not right. God is not right. Sin actually assails the character of God. But in that day, everything in the world, every person, every atom, however big the universe will be, everything will say, God is all. God is right. It's all acknowledging the supremacy of God. But God is all in all. And I think you're moving to a slightly different thought there. That not only are we looking at the outward expression that God is all, but inwardly, everything is in perfect harmony with God's character. To understand the world at the present time, animal creation, a world that is ticking down, is not in keeping with the character of God. But the world that then is, is a world in which God will be supreme and everything will be in harmony with the very character of God. Now, you understand, that is sinners accepted who have been banished into the lake of fire. But all of God's new heaven and new earth, this new creation, will all be characterized by this marvelous description. Finally, God will be acknowledged as supreme, unrivaled. And everything in that world will be in absolute harmony with all that God is and with all that God desires. Does that appeal to you? That's what God deserves. He should be supreme. Acknowledge supreme. All ought to be in keeping with his character. And we look at the world where we, in which we now live and we ought to recognize it's not that way. What a tragedy. Not just because it bothers us, but because it is so far from the character of what God deserves and desires. But thank God, God shall be all in 
both through Christ's work on the cross and, and his work as king, subjecting all things to himself, and he, God will have more as a result of bringing in Christ than he had in creation itself. I think that's a tremendous commentary on God, because while that's true for the whole creation, it's only God that can do that in your life and mine. He can take failure and not only deal with that failure and overcome it, but out of that failure bring greater blessing than would have been otherwise. Do you follow the parallel I'm drawing? Creation. Failure. Recovery. And even more. I sin. Recovered by redemption. And God has more from me than he would ever have had from me had I never sinned. That would have been something. But Adam himself, had he never sinned, the same story. So, we're looking at a God who has the unique capability to overrule failure for his glory. So, someone says to Paul, so would we be slanderously deported as saying, let us sin, let us do evil, let good may come. That's not the point. But the point is this, even in our failures, let us never take the idea that that is the last chapter of the book. God is able by his rich grace to overrule for our failures and recover. And in the marvel of his wisdom, produce more as a result of the failure and his overruling power than was lost to begin with. Great God that we have, and here's just another reminder of it. Now, let me just show you another profound graphic that I worked on. I don't even know whether you'll be able to get the idea. No, you can't get the idea of that. I did it in color and I printed it on a coloring, so I thought I could do it in black, but it didn't work. You're supposed to be able to see that this is a lighter gray than that is. Uh, I think it may be by about 10%, but anyway, that's the point. The point is, when you look at the millennium and then this transition into the day of God, the city, Jerusalem, the bride, that's pictured as reigning over the earth, in Revelation 21 from verse 9 on down through the end of the chapter and the first verses of chapter 22. That city in which you and I who are in the church, the bride, will be living and administering with Christ over the earth in that millennial time, that city enjoys eternal conditions. In that city we have read, there shall be no more curse. The curse has been removed from that city. That is... It has come down from God out of heaven. And there will not be any sin in us. There will not be any possibility of death for us. But every aspect of the curse has been removed in that city. But not so in this earthly kingdom. We read last night about a, a, a child at a hundred could die. Uh, it would be a long life. It wouldn't be just three months and gone. But it would still die. Uh, and there is death that is a possible punishment for those that rebel against the king. And in addition to that, although animals don't devour one another, yet I would think since death affects the human family, death will affect the animal kingdom as well. And uh, so the curse of sin will not be totally removed. Now, we looked last night at the changes as far as fruitfulness and the in the field and, and we looked at the, the change of the animal kingdom so that the lion and the, and the uh, lamb 
it's not really what it says, but the lion and the, the um, ox will uh, feed together and the bear and the, and the cow will raise their young together and lie down together. There will be tremendous changes, but the changes will not be complete in this earthly kingdom. The curse will have been partly rolled back. In the city, the curse totally rolled back. And so the city and all that are linked with it go through this transition, no change. An eternal condition. This is the liberty of the glory of the sons of God. That is what we read about. That's my reason for going back to Romans chapter 8. Last, we read it last night, reading it again tonight. This glorious liberty that we enter on at the moment of the rapture, that will be displayed in us when we come out with the Lord Jesus and will reside in that city, Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, that is eternal conditions beyond all the effects of sin. Our bodies redeemed, everything about us brought into conformity with God's ultimate purpose. And when God reveals that, he will roll back partly the curse as far as creation is concerned. The creation is groaning. It's waiting to be born with a longing for this righteousness. And it will be partly rolled back. But when it passes through this, and I'm sure you understand that this is a figure of the fire. When the fire then purges the heaven and the earth and God makes a new heaven and a new earth, the color here is the same as the color here. This, then, the whole creation, all of creation, I don't know whether it will be animals in that new creation or not, no trace of evidence about that, but the whole creation will have had the curse removed it's rolled back here. It's removed completely here. It's removed completely as far as the city is concerned. So, what you see in the city during the millennial period of time is just a preview that God features and says, this is the first installment and this is what I'm going to do with everything. But here it is on display. It has been accomplished in the redeemed. So you're looking at the liberty, the glory of liberty, or actually the liberty of the glory of the Son of of God. Now, one more section that I want to look at here. Way down at the bottom. This happens to be. So, here you can almost read it. The final permanence of this new creation. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 11 quotes from Psalm 102 about the Lord Jesus. And you wouldn't have known the full extent of what's in Psalm 102 if you didn't have Hebrews chapter 1. But, um, in Psalm 102 and quoted in verse 11 here is uh, the, the request in Psalm 102 is take me not away in the midst of my days and the, the answer from the Father to the Son according to Hebrews chapter 1 is thou art the same and thy years shall have no change in the beginning thou hast thou created the heavens and the earth and then he says, they all shall wax old and shall be destroyed. And they shall wax, I'm not quoting properly, as a, they shall wax old as a garment and they shall be changed. But thou art the same and thy years shall, shall not fail. Now, the word that's used for they all shall wax old and decay is the same word that's used in, in uh, chapter 8 and verse 13 about the old covenant. And what, what the, uh, the, the uh, writer of the Hebrews is proving is that that old covenant is waxing old. It's decaying. In other words, it's not able to accomplish its purpose. It's winding down. And it's ready to pass away. That's the same word that's used for the present creation. 
That's why I use the idea of this clock ticking down. Now, I don't know whether this is a good example or not, but you know the uh, second law of thermodynamics? I know you all know that. But things left to themselves tend to disorder. That, that's the story of our world. If there isn't some power to move it in the right direction, it tends to disorder. In other words, if you have something moving in the present world, it, it, it's, it, it eventually will slow down. Now that's another, another law, but just the same, that's the picture of it. And the world in which we are living is getting old. And it's slowing down. And it's getting to the point where it, was, it moves into disorder and there is decay that affects the whole world. Understand the point? This new heaven and this new earth will have the clock wound up all the way to the top. And it will never begin to wind down. It will always be new. Its character will be forever new. Disorder will never come into that world. And decay will never take place in that world. It will be a new heaven and a new earth. And it will be a permanent condition. There will never be a time when God has to remake or redo anything that he has accomplished in the ultimate purpose in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, I'm going to take a few minutes just to do a little bit of review. Um, I'll skip that. Just to go back over all of this now, we looked at this somewhere in the beginning uh, of these meetings. But, oops. There you are. So, from the day of Pentecost, the age in which we are living is the church age. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it's referred to as man's day. This is the, the time when God has allowed men to make their own choices. And, uh, of course, man is choosing sin and the, the world is going into disorder increasingly, despite all the progress that man boasts of. But this is man's day that will end at the rapture. And two days take place here. There is the day of Christ, or in Philippians chapter 1 it's called the day of Jesus Christ. And Paul speaks about rejoicing over the Philippians in the day of Christ. So he's referring to the judgment seat of Christ and his being in heaven and the reward that will be his there. So the day of Christ has to do with heaven, it has to do with the church, has to do with our being with the Lord Jesus Christ. But the day of God is this day that extends not only through the tribulation period of time for the return of Christ on the earth, the whole millennial period of time until it ends, as we have read in Second Peter chapter 2, with fire destroying the heavens and the earth, the elements melt with fervent heat, and the works therein shall be destroyed. And then finally, what we have been looking at tonight, this eternal state, the great white throne of judgment in between here, the eternal state called the day of God. Man's day is, un is an undisclosed period of time mm -hmm. until the rapture. This tribulation time, seven years. Daniel's 70th week, one week of seven years. The millennium, a thousand years. The eternal state, a changeless, unending extent of God's dealings of blessing. Now, I don't know how good this will be got the same problem with this wet ink messing this up. But I attempted to list, actually, I'll, I'll go over with you, Jim, so you can see it. But, um, I borrowed this 
copied it from um, Bible Knowledge Commentary. Uh, so I have to acknowledge that, but I will also tell you that I did make some changes in it. So you can't blame everything on the Bible Knowledge Commentary because they had some things in a different place than I would think they belong. So I did some shuffling, minor. But uh, it deals with now the periods of future events that we have looked at. Okay? The first period is Daniel's 70th week, that seven year period of time. And then it moves over after that to. That's the. Sorry, my mistake. It goes over to the blending. So let me just look at these together with you. Just as an outline of future events, what will take place before that seven-year period begins is the church will be raptured. That heat, that which restraineth will be taken out of the way. I think it will be the Spirit of God in the believers in the world in which we live. And so the restraining power of the Spirit of God through His people will be removed. The judgment seat of Christ will take place in heaven. And the Antichrist will somehow or other rise to power over the Roman Confederacy. Now, uh, that's not saying that that has to take place before the rapture, but it, it has to be in place at the beginning of this seven-year period of time. It may be already in place, we, uh, we don't know. But uh, the fact is, at the beginning of the seven-year period of time, there was one trigger event, and that is when this man... The ruler, the prince that shall come, the little horn, the willful king, makes a covenant with Israel for seven years of peace and safety. And then the first half of that seven-year period of time, the first half of the week, uh, I moved this one to this point, they had it down further, but uh, the 144,000, I take it, will be sealed at the very beginning of that period of time, and they will go with a mission to the Gentiles. The Antichrist becomes a world ruler, uh, the first seal from Revelation chapter 6, and of course he does it by peace and by negotiation, not by military might. But Israel will live then in the land in peace, secured by the covenant, the temple sacrifices will be instituted, uh, that's given to us in Revelation 11, uh, Babylon, the world church dominates religion and the Antichrist, the woman rides on the beast. And famine, war, and death, the second, third, and fourth seals in Revelation chapter 6, all take place in the first half of that week. And many believers will be martyred, the fifth seal in Revelation chapter 6. Now, just before the middle of the week, and I'm not sure whether this belongs here or whether it belongs further up here, but Gog and Magog come in to invade Palestine from the north, and uh, they're destroyed by God with hailstones and natural disasters. A natural disturbances and worldwide fear of divine wrath comes in that sixth seal, where the men are great and small, slave and free, are all hiding themselves in the hills and in the rocks and calling on the mountains to fall on them and to hide them from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. They are recognizing that the uh, judgment is about to fall in this last part of the week. So there have been some judgments in the first part of the week, these seals that have been opened, but the trumpets and the bowls will be much more intense and they are coming in this great day of his wrath is the day of God dealing in wrath on earth. At the middle of the week, the event that makes the difference at the middle of the week is Satan is cast down from heaven, energized with the Antichrist, and he breaks his covenant with Israel and causes the sacrifices to cease and uh, his image the abomination is set up for worship in the temple, 
the ten kings then under the Antichrist, those ten horns, you may recall, will now turn on the, the harlot and uh, actually remove Babylon. Of course, uh, Babylon and world religion, the world church, can't coexist with uh, an emperor that's being worshipped as God. And so, his henchmen, the Antichrist's ten king henchmen, will destroy the church and the worship of the Antichrist is set up. And there are many from Israel that are awakened. Taking that from Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins at midnight that cried enough, the old bridegroom cometh. And then those ten virgins that have been sleeping, awakened. Five of them are genuine, wakened up for the last part of the week. So there's a progressive awakening here. You have just a remnant at the beginning, 144,000, and some other Jews will be saved at the beginning. And then you have a further group saved now at the very middle. At the middle of the week, many from Israel awaken. Now, in the second half of that seven-year period of time, it is referred to as the Great Tribulation. The Tribulation, the Great One. We talk about the seven years as the Tribulation, but the Tribulation, the Great One, is that last half of the week when God particularly deals with Israel. And there will be rebellion and apostasy against truth as far as all that claim to be linked with God. And the Antichrist will be revealed as the man of lawlessness. His true colors will now be, be out uh, there will be many who will be martyred from all the nations. Uh, there's a multitude that no man can number in Revelation 7 of every kindred and tongue of people and nation. And uh, they shed their blood because of the opposition of the Antichrist to them. Uh, two witnesses begin their ministry. We mentioned that briefly. And the false prophet will promote the Antichrist. He'll actually cause his image to come to life and cause people to bow down to worship it. The mark of the beast will be used to enforce commerce and the worship of the beast. Israel will be scattered. Remember the woman that has to run into the hiding place in the wilderness where she will be hid for 1260 days, I think is the, the day figure that is given there for her. God will protect her and actually the earth itself will swallow up the flood that Satan sends to destroy her. And Jerusalem will be overrun by Gentiles. Antichrist and the false prophet will deceive many. The gospel will go out, and this could very well go up here with 144,000, whatever they are. Mm. Ah, oh, it's too small. The uh, 144,000 up here at the top part of the chart. Right there. But anyway, the gospel of the kingdom goes out to the whole world and Israel is persecuted by the Antichrist. The, the trumpet and bold judgments are poured out. And as these judgments go up, blasphemy against God is not decreased, but actually increases as well. Okay, I think I can read this to you, for you. At the conclusion now, we have moved through the second half of that seven-year period of time. I, I'll, I'll just ask and visit the door, and you're supposed to name everything in the institution, three sheets. But uh, the two witnesses are slain at the end of this, getting through the end of the seven-year period, by the Antichrist, and their dead bodies lie in the street for three days, I think it is. And then they, they rise up in the street before all the wondering world is celebrating their death. Somewhere toward the conclusion of that seven-year period of time, the king of the north comes down, 
and the king of the south rises from the south to attack the Antichrist and the Antichrist now enters Palestine and he begins to move out and defeat of Egypt, Libya and Ethiopia we looked at that and then the armies from the east and the north are moving now toward Palestine and the Antichrist while he's on his conquest of the king of the north and the south hears tidings from the north and from the east and he can't complete his conquest he must go back to Jerusalem to defend it and <coughs> Jerusalem is ravished Zechariah 14 tells us that the half of the city is carried away in captivity and killed Babylon destroyed at the end of that period of time there are signs according to this signs that appear in heaven and uh, in the earth and in the sky and Christ returns with the armies of heaven the Jews flee from Jerusalem facilitated by a topographical change that's the plain that's made there and the valley through the uh, Mount of Olives and at the end of this seven year period of time the armies unite against Christ and the armies are destroyed by him the beast and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire you with me here can you see that the final regathering of Israel God now finally the angels gather together they uh, weep and bring it into the barn they're all gathered back to Egypt not Egypt to Israel itself and uh, remnants of Israel will turn to the Lord are forgiven and cleansed and is a fountain open for sin and for uncleanness here in Zechariah 13 and verse 1 Israel as a nation is delivered and God judges those that are living in Israel and those that are living Gentile the sheep and Satan is cast into the abyss and they have it here so it must be true the Old Testament saints are resurrected and the Lord comes back to the earth and uh, tribulation saints are likewise raised according to Revelation 20 and the what, what God promised to Daniel what the angel promised to Daniel in Daniel 9 70 weeks are determined upon my people and the ultimate of that was that they would finish their sin but God would finish his dealings with them and bring in righteousness and anoint the holy place and the marriage supper of the Lamb which we didn't describe at all but the marriage of the Lamb is in heaven just the bride and her bridegroom in heaven the marriage supper the marriage has taken place in Revelation 19 and now the marriage supper is about to take place when the Lord Jesus comes back to the earth it's the celebration actually that goes through the whole millennial, millennial period of time when earth and heaven will rejoice together over the triumph of the Lord and Christ, Christ begins his reign on earth now, you will have no problem remembering all of that, so let me just pile a little bit more on top of that. By way of review. Oops. You remember this from last night, so it's hardly necessary to review it. But in the millennium, a physical characteristics that will be seen, the topography and geography of the earth changed, wild animals so different, abundant crops, and human lifespan extended. And then, spiritual and religious changes Satan will be confined for that thousand years there will be a millennial temple built we didn't touch that animal sacrifice offered as memorials same thing we said last night the feasts of the new year and Passover and the tabernacles will be reinstituted nations will come up to Jerusalem to worship because there will be no rival religions there will be worldwide knowledge of God and the spirit of God active in a most remarkable way in that period of time the new covenant with Israel will be fulfilled that is that God will be their God but they will be his people with hearts that have been changed 
and his law now written in their heart. Righteousness and justice will prevail in the whole earth. A king shall reign in righteousness. Politically, Israel will be reunited. No longer the two nations, ten tribes and two tribes, but that enemy will be done away. Israel will be at peace in the land. They will have the borders that God promised to Abraham. Christ will rule in Jerusalem and the son of David, fulfilling David's covenant, will sit on the throne of the Lord in Jerusalem. Christ will rule over and judge the nations and uh, resurrected saints will reign with Christ. Universal peace. Jerusalem, the world's capital. Israel, exalted above the nations. Israel will be the head of the nations and not the people. And finally, the world will be blessed through Israel. In fact, Abraham's covenant was through thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed. That will take place ultimately, finally, completely in the millennial period of time. Following the millennium, Satan's released, deceived the nations, armies besieged Jerusalem, destroyed by fire, Satan cast into the lake of fire, and I'm not sure how we know that this comes in here. Evil angels judge. All I know is that 1 Corinthians 6 says, Know ye not that ye shall judge angels. So, if that's fulfilled with evil angels, or whether it's fulfilled in our ministering angels all through that period of time, is really what I would prefer to say. The wicked dead will be resurrected. And that is the second resurrection, the resurrection of damnation. And they will stand at the great white throne of judgment and be cast into the lake of fire. And finally, what we have looked at tonight, in eternity, Christ delivers the mediatorial kingdom to God the Father. Mediatorial sounds pretty fancy, man. But it's the, the kingdom that he will be effective as we, uh, bringing everything beneath his feet. So he stands between God and the world to accomplish God's purpose in the world and to bring everything into subjection. And the mediator is one in between. And the present heaven and earth will be demolished, new heavens and new earth created. See, they differ with me there. New Jerusalem will descend to the new earth. You see, it comes down over the earth in the millennium, but there is now no separation between heaven and earth in this new kingdom, and Christ reigns forever in that everlasting kingdom. So, there is just enough so that when somebody questions you, what's going to happen in the future, all you have to do is just spit out three transparencies worth of events, just one right after the other. But simply, at least, we've looked at the events that take place before this week of prophecy, the trigger event at the beginning, then what happens in the first part of that week, and then the event in the middle, when the man of sin sits in the temple, the abomination that makes desolate, and then the terrible holocaust that will follow in the last part of the week, and the events that culminate at the end of the week with the coming of the Lord Jesus and the resurrection of the saints and their reward and the casting of Satan into the abyss for a thousand years and then a thousand years of reigning that will end with a rebellion strange to say and fire coming down to destroy them and actually fire that will as well melt everything and a new heaven and a new earth which you understand completely because we've looked at it tonight oh my, sorry to take you so long Let's pray.